Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I will be speaking with Gintas Kuchunas, NPH MA, on the article, The Association Between Endotracheal Tube Size and Aspiration During Fees in Acute Respiratory Failure Survivors, recently published in Critical Care Medicine. To access this full article, visit ccmjournal.org. Gintas is a research assistant professor of otolaryngology at Boston University School of Medicine and Boston Medical Center in Massachusetts. His research focuses on clinical aspects of dysphagia and outcomes. Gintas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. And uh, let's just um, you know do logistics first. Do you have any disclosures to report? Uh, thank you very much for having me on today. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and I have no disclosures to report. Okay. So yeah, let's get started. I personally was so happy to be able to discuss this topic because uh, a lot of focus, thankfully now in critical care, is about helping critically ill patients recover and thinking about all the various uh, sequelae complications during that period and um, tracheal injury, uh, dysphagia are definitely part of that. So this paper... Uh, definitely inserts a good thinking uh, uh, point for all of us. So not to assume that any of us um, you know, know everything about this topic, um, I would like to get you to just kind of go over what made you guys look into this, um, what is the technology that you use to examine this, and then we can talk about the, um, the, 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 the meaning behind the data. Sure. Um, yeah. So as you mentioned, um, you know, the sequela of uh, long-term intubation, um, you know, often has uh, focused on uh, kind of the mortality, morbidity um, pieces. But uh, a really important aspect of it really is is dysphagia and aspiration uh, for a, a couple of reasons. You know, obviously, um, you know, you don't want patients who recently extubated to aspirate because obviously of aspiration pneumonia risk, um, among others. Um, but there's this fine balance between um, allowing patients to eat and drink and be provided medications in a timely way um, and also ensuring that they're safe. Um, and so, um, so that's kind of the global context of kind of aspiration, uh, dysphagia, and, and uh extubation with ARF patient population. Um, but an interesting uh, piece to this, I think, is is can we predict, or, or in this case, can you find ways to modify that risk? Um, and you know, a lot of the risk factors for post-extubation dysphagia and aspiration are really not modifiable. Um, you know, there are things like age or, or comorbid status or length of intubation, but um, endotracheal tube size may be one of those things that actually is modifiable. So that was one of our um, uh, kind of impetuses for for looking at this. Uh, um, and we had some preliminary data uh, from a previous study that suggested that uh, larger ETTs may, in fact, be associated with um, greater risk of aspiration, um, but the sample size was smaller um, and it was, wasn't adjusted for other covariates. So um, we were able to to do that with this much larger study. And the way we were able to 
of um, assess this in this larger study, and with respect to your question about the technology use, is um, we, we used uh, this uh, fee is a fees protocol. So it's just it's a laryngoscopy. So you use a flexor laryngoscope, um, but there's a protocol called the fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, um, or at this point probably flexible endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, since most people don't use fiber scopes anymore. Um, and it's a protocol to assess um, uh, the physiologic aspects of swallowing, but also uh, whether or not it's safe by providing different boluses, so thin liquids, ice, thick liquids, uh, to see how the patient is managing it in terms of efficiency and, and also whether or not um, they're potentially aspirating it or their aspiration risk. So that's kind of the safety piece of it. Um, so um, we effectively screened patients who were... Um, who didn't have any pre-existing uh, dysphagia and who weren't being treated for something that could have caused a dysphagia, like a stroke, um, who were admitted to ICU, who had a diagnosis of acute respiratory failure, and um, anyone who kind of met that criterion, we had a number of other criterion, but anyone um, we would do a, a fees exam on um, to see if they were indeed aspirating. Um, um, and, and then we were if we effectively correlated it with um, what Intertracheal tube size that they had received uh, um, upon admission. And just to interrupt briefly, so it looks like you guys did the fees study within 72 hours of extubation. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Um, so we wanted to select a time that was realistic in terms of when we could actually have speech pathology go and see the patient, um, um, but not too far out so that um, they would be potentially moved out to acute or um, or even sent home. <laughs> mm -hmm. And was this the one-time study or did you look at each patient um, at several time points? Yeah, this this particular study was a, was a one-time uh, evaluation. We would love to do uh, serial fees to see how uh, aspiration um, and how swallowing changes over time. That's something that has not been looked at to my, to my knowledge. Uh, but that would be pretty fascinating to kind of see the progression of of um, the issue. Oh, yes. I think that would be really fascinating. And how many patients did you guys wind up studying? And I believe this was a multi-centered um, collaboration, right? It, it was. So uh, we have this fantastic um, kind of consortium uh, um, between Boston Medical slash Boston University, uh, University of Colorado, Denver, um, Yale, and Stanford. And so um, this is part of a, a, an R21, and we enrolled 200, well, we enrolled more than 210, but 210 were the, the number of people we enrolled in this particular study, or in this particular paper. I think we that's, enrolled a total of about 240-ish. That's a really nice study. Good job. So um, now that you've uh, educated us on the uh, study methods, uh, if you could share with us your findings, that, that, that would be really great. Sure. Um, so, the the kind of like the quick the quick finding was um, that patients who had an uh, 8.0 endotracheal tube or larger um, had about um, twice the odds of of um, of experiencing a post extubation dysphagia as those patients who had um, been intubated with a, a 7.5 or smaller. Um, of note, the majority of our sample had either a 7.0, a 7.5, or an 8.0. There were just a few people or above or below that. 
Um, so that was really it. And, and um, so that was our, our primary finding. Um, and that was adjusted for a number of, of uh, other covariates. So you know, one might initially say, okay, maybe someone with a larger ETT, maybe they were given the larger ETT because there were, maybe they were more comorbid and they're worried they were going to be intubated for longer or may need you know, pulmonary suction or Bronx. Um, so we adjusted this for age and gender and, and um, a whole number of other comorbidities, um, the CCI. Um, and um, after adjusting for all of it, um, there was still a significant difference. Um, again, the odds was um, odds ratio was at 2.17. Um, so a significant difference in aspiration. Gintas, just to just interrupt, um, if, sure. you, if you could tell us what CCI stands for. Oh, um, Charleston Comorbidity Index. And uh, we also use the Apache 2, which oh, I always forget that one. Um, oh, that's okay. Yeah, I think okay. uh, yeah, people can <laughs> people um, can figure uh, the Apache. Uh, but they both are ways for you guys to analyze whether somebody's medical complexity was associated with the prevalence or the incidence of dysphagia. Yeah, and whether or not they were correlated with the larger ET size, exactly. Yeah. What about somebody's um, um, like physical attributes, like uh, BMI, height, weight? Did any of those correlate? Uh, yeah, so we did look at BMI, and there actually was no correlation between BMI and ET size or um, aspiration, interestingly. Uh-huh. But you did not look at uh, height or weight, um yeah no not not as a not as a independent um predictor mm-hmm. okay all right well that odds ratio is pretty significant like you said so um did your group come up with any conclusions about this um yeah i mean tentatively um i, I don't I hesitate to be overly authoritative in in, in conclusions but um this certainly suggests that a larger ETT size um, is associated with a greater risk of aspiration. Um, the underlying mechanisms behind that um, are pretty, are I should say elusive. Um, we don't really fully understand any of it. Um, and it's quite fascinating. We can certainly um, throw out a few hypotheses, but um, but really the, the, the takeaway is, is, you know, if you, if you don't think the patient is going to be a patient who will be intubated for a very long time or need a lot of, you know, um, a lot of, you know, bronch work, then if you can choose between a seven five and an eight zero, um, go with the seven five. Um, but of course, you need to balance uh, proper patient care with with uh, um, potential adverse outcomes associated with a larger ETT. Well, I would love to hear your hypothesis, but I wanted to ask you one quick question. Sure. Uh, your list of collaborators did include, well, obviously, um, your home department of otolaryngology, but also um, a number of, of uh, pulmonary physicians who undoubtedly had um, their own reaction to the uh, tube size. Things like 
uh, bronchoscopy and um, bronchoalveolar lavage in the ICU. Those are things that are uh, done quite often in yep. this population. So when when your collaborators saw this conclusion, I'm just interested. Did, what, what did they have to say about it? Sure. So um, um, you know, I have to admit, that Mark Moss, Dr. Moss, is the uh, senior last author on this paper. Um, he he's the PI of the R R twenty one for the whole project, um, and um, I know we we had talked about this uh, extensively. And and he, he said, you know, this is a really interesting, great finding. Um, and he had kind of given this anecdote with, you know, they were intubating someone, and someone handed him an eight zero, and he said, yeah, I would like to seven five. <laughs> um, so you know, I, I think I think this really does have some significant clinical implications uh, when feasible. Um, and in uh, talking to this with some colleagues also, and um, at least in, in otolaryngology with at Boston Medical, and and uh, as I'm sure you know, uh, otolaryngology is involved in a lot of kind of um, like the emergency airway response projects, and and um, you know, a couple of them said, you, you know, that just, that just makes sense. And, and from now on, I'm going with a 7.5 if I can. Um, so I think there, there, there are, I don't want to speak for all clinicians across all fields, but um, I think, you know, a general idea of if you shove something that's much larger into someone's trachea, then the ch chances of, of an adverse, you know, kind of, uh, reaction to that of some sort is more likely than a small one. So if you can get away with a smaller tube, then why not do it? I, I think, you know, having data to support that is important. And it sounds yeah. like you definitely convinced your collaborators. You had mentioned that you could um, think of a couple of um, hypotheses for this. Um, please do share with us. Oh, sure. You know, it's, um, I mean, the raw numbers are pretty pretty interesting in terms of the difference in, in aspiration rates. I think for in general, for those with 7.5 or lower, I think a little less than a quarter actually exhibited any aspiration, whereas those with 8.0 or higher, I think about a 40, 42% um, uh, rate of aspiration. So the, the, the raw number of difference is huge. But the interesting thing is that so there are two, I guess, I don't know if you can call it types of aspiration, but two ways you can classify it. One being silent aspiration, one being non-silent. So, um, you know, silent aspiration is something goes into, you know, you know past the cords is into the trachea and the patient never responds. Um, and so, um, whereas uh, non-silent aspiration, the patient will either, you know, elicit a, a, a slight cough or a swallow usually if, if the bolus is, is felt in the laryngeal vestibule, so on or around the arytenoids and epiglottis or on top of the cords, um, it, or if the bolus passes beyond the cords, then it should elicit a cough. Um, and interestingly, the, the rate of both um, silent and non-silent aspiration increased proportionally. Um, so there's some Somewhere in there, there there's likely um, uh, an impact on on sensation, both you know supraglottic and subglottic, which, as I'm sure you know, is innervated kind of two different nerves: the interior branch of the superior laryngeal nerve and the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Um, and uh, so the question is, what is it about the ETT size that is impacting uh, that sensation? Um, and then the other question is, what is it doing in terms of the physiology of the swallow? Um, 
And these are all fascinating questions that we don't fully understand. How did you evaluate the the nerve dysfunction during this study, if, if you did? And what are the different ways that people could do that? Sure. Um, so I, I don't know of a practical way to test subglottic sensation other than the fact that if, if a person doesn't respond to a bolus on your tracheal mucosa, then that should be a clear indication that you're something wrong with your recurrent laryngeal nerve. Um, but for a supraglottic sensation, uh, a common uh, test for that is to just... Um, um, carefully and quickly take the tip of your endoscope and just tap the arytenoid. Um, and the arytenoid, well, it should, it should move and or, or, and or the uh, cords should actually quickly close. So that's your laryngeal adductor reflux, reflex, sorry, um, your LAR. Um, and so if, a, if you, you know, tap them a couple of times on the arytenoids and you don't see the LAR, then in theory, that that should uh, suggest that their supraglottic sensation really isn't that great. Um, if I mean, we practice endoscopy all the time on ourselves, you know, just for fun and for <laughs> research purposes. <laughs> and I can tell you, if 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 someone taps my arytenoids with a scope, I will most definitely feel it. Um, so. Uh, how sensitive of a measure that is, that, that's up for argument, but uh, someone with normal sensation will certainly feel it. I think that's a really fascinating thing to think about, that the presence of a foreign body over time somehow causes you know, our uh, brain to really essentially rewire that part and to kind of maybe be comfortable with it. I mean, I, I don't know, I'm just yeah. sort of guessing, but um, I the... the the next question I have for you is, do any of us, and by us, I mean you, do any of you know the duration of this um, adjustment in sensations or, or this dysfunction? Yeah, that's a, you know, a great question. And um, the, the quick question is, the quick answer is no. Um, and I'm sure it's person specific, um, you know, probably a function of a lot of different things, whether it's duration of ETs of uh, intubation or just other comorbidities. Um, but there was a, a paper published, I think just last year by Marvin and colleagues um, that showed that aspiration rates decreased in the first 24 hours after extubation. Um, and that, I mean, that was amongst a heterogeneous group of patients and not just ARF patients. Um, but I would speculate that some of that improvement may have been a function of positive changes in sensation. Um, you know, because if you can sense the bolus, you know, you should actually, the first thing, if, if you have good supraglottic sensation, if you sense the bolus, you know, on in the laryngeal vestibule, then you should actually elicit a swallow. Um, and, um, and then you know this probably is probably also a function of general increased strength and general kind of alert and oriented nature. Um, that only went to 24 hours. I, I'm not aware of any research that's actually looked at this beyond that. And so that I think would be a really fascinating paper or a research study to do. Yeah, I I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, well, I suppose once we can figure out how long this dysfunction is or whether it's permanent then we can think about how to help rehabilitate these patients. And I know that 
this is definitely one of the uh, topics that you are interested in and are looking at as well. Do you have any um, uh, recommendations about how to uh, rehab these patients or how to design a rehab regimen for them once they have dysphagia? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first question is to be able to understand the the mechanisms, kind of etiology of the dysphagia. So what what aspects of the swallow and of sensation are impaired? Is it a timing issue? Is it a generalized weakness issue? Is it a sensation issue? Is it some combination of all of the above? Um, so um, there's, a, um, there's another paper that I don't think has come out quite yet. It's been accepted. Um, out of this group too. So um, Langmore, Susan Langmore is the first author in that one. It should be coming out in the dysphagia journal soon. Um, we, we tried to figure out some sort of phenotype um, because if we can do that, we can then maybe try to target some interventions, um, some sort of rehabilit- re- like rehabilitation interventions or maybe just compensatory ones. Um, so, you know, maybe, you know, asking the patient to, eat and drink and swallow in, in a certain way or using certain modified diets, um, or maybe, you know, using uh, some sort of strengthening interventions, whether it's, um, you know, generalized strengthening or whether it's specific to the, to overall, you know, the general swallow or high elevation or tongue strength. Um, so uh, I think there's definitely a role there for rehab, even in, um, even in, in the, um, hospital setting. But the first thing we need to do is identify and understand kind of the, the biomechanics of this dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then once you understand that, then create a more specific plan. Is that what you're Exactly. Okay. Yep. And, and, and I think that's, that's kind of phase two of, of all of this is now that we have a preliminary understanding of kind of what's going on, could we better understand it? Is it, you know, what are the key drivers of, of, aspiration and of dysphagia in general, which includes aspiration. Right. Yeah, I, th- I, I think it is, it's such a big topic and so important to patients and their families. Um, you know, I, I, yeah. I personally hear a lot about how, how important it is to somebody's, uh, like, almost self-worth to, to be able to, you know, Absolutely. eat and yeah. swallow. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, exactly. I mean, eating and drinking is probably one of my favorite things to do. I mean, I, I love food and I love celebrating. And if that was taken away from me, I, I would be in a, I would be in a bad place mentally. I got right, So that's a big deal. Um, um, absolutely. So the, the, the biggest finding of your paper is that the endotracheal tube size matters. And what I wanted to make sure I asked for all of the listeners out there who are undoubtedly thinking the same thing is um, for now, do you have any, um, advice about how to determine what a good endotracheal tube size is. Um, you and I were speaking about this, um, you know, preliminarily, but, you know, is it going to be something like somebody's gender? Is it their height? Is it, you know, their body type? Any, um, any, any, any pearls that you can give us now, or is this something that we're going to have to look forward to down the road? Sure. Um, you know, my, my understanding is that, that in oftentimes ETT sizes kind of 
guesstimated based on gender and height, you know, male, larger, you get an 8.0, female, smaller, you get a 7.75. Um, uh, I personally don't have any pearls about this. I, I don't know if there's, if there's any good data to support any of this. Um, and I mean, interestingly, you know, we're talking about laryngeal size could certainly vary by gender, but also in height, but also within gender and height. I mean, you can have a four foot five woman, you can have a six foot two woman, same for, for men. Um, and so kind of a question that came up in our group is, is uh, you know, is it really gender and height or should we be worrying about maybe the ratio between the external diameter of the ETT as compared to the diameter of, you know, the glottic space or the, or the trachea. Um, and, you know, perhaps it's that ratio that actually matters more than just the ETT size. Um, certainly there will be some correlation between, you know, person size in general, but, um, but yeah, this is a really interesting question. I think one that remains um, unanswered, but, uh, right for exploration. Right. Well, that leads me to uh, my my conclusion, including question for you, which is, what is next for your group in terms of this topic of uh, research? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, we're we're certainly moving forward with a few big questions. Uh, I think one is, uh, can we identify um, um, Kind of like, what is it about the ETT size that um, that that results in this association between larger ETT size and and aspiration risk? So we're definitely going to be looking more into that. Um, we're very interested in understanding the kind of the biomechanics of the of the swallow dysfunction, um, trying to see if we can come up with um, um, kind of like, like certain classes of dysphagia, perhaps or um, uh, uh, certain concrete algorithms for for uh, uh, what defines um, the problem, so we can try to target target that. Um, and um, just to continue our work on trying to develop um, um, kind of optimal algorithms to predict aspiration, because not everybody has fees available. Um, and um, so, kind of another paper. Um, that was just published in Chess by uh, Mark Moss from our group um, delineates you know, this predictive clinical predictive rule um, the algorithm we designed to try to um, try to predict who is at greatest risk of aspiration and who isn't, so that they can be appropriately um, referred to, to to speech. So, um, so I think those three things are kind of at the top of our list. Um, you know, to better understand the role of VTT size. Um, to, uh, to better understand the etiology of the dysphagia and to um, come up with ways to, um, to um, better identify those at greatest risk um, of aspiration. Right. Well, it sounds like our knowledge and our ability to clinically adjust in this area is changing rapidly right now, thanks really to your group. So thank you for that. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot more that needs to come out um, to, to, to help us uh, figure out these uh, outstanding questions like how to select for the best endotracheal tube size and the time course of the dysfunction caused by the decreased sensations. So I think um, I'm for, I for and will be keeping my um, eyes open for 
those articles. Uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us your thoughts on this and your findings. Um, Great. This well, thank you very much. Oh, yes, yes. Um, this uh, concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. And for the iCritical Care podcast division, I am Dr. Ludwig Lin. Take care. Ludwig H. Lin, MD, is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Alta Bates Summit Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being an SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants, and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.